And that's always been true. That's true in a secular setting. That's true. Uh, it's easier to talk about a nation being free than it is to put forth troops and spend the energy and the lives and the blood to actually obtain the freedom that we talk about. And so it's true in the spirit as well. And, and today, and as in all the times that we will be together in discussing the word, it really will not be adequate if our response to the word of God in order to experience freedom is simply listening. And we're going to have to fight for freedom. And fighting is going to mean holding on to what we're learning, reviewing what we're learning, getting with God, allowing the wind of the Holy Spirit to blow upon these things in the particular areas of our own lives. So if you don't have a, a sermon notebook that you store your sermons in and go back and review them, and probably what's most important in your notes after today will not be the black ink on the page here. It's going to be whatever you write on the page. It's going to be whatever the Holy Spirit makes real to you as this message is preached that you're going to hold on to and do something with. So I hope everybody's armed with notes, you're armed with something to write with, and you have the intention of holding on to these notes in the next couple of weeks to continue to review them for your own benefit. Today I entitled the message, Understanding the Anatomy of a Jail Cell. And I hope the Lord will bring us some insights into why we struggle with sin the way we do in particular areas. And I want to draw our attention back to that. I'll say this a couple of times today. The message and the series is not so much just dealing with sin in a generic fashion as much as it's dealing with the elements where sin begins to, to seize control in specific ways in our lives. That's where we fight the most for freedom. Those familiar patterns, those personality components, well, that's just the way I am. Those kind of dynamics that are part of our everyday life, that when we draw our attention to it sufficiently, I think you'll find out that the lack of joy that's in our life, which really is a good indicator of our degree of freedom, is usually about those areas. It's, it's usually not about those unusual events that kind of plunge into our lives unexpectedly or interrupt our day on a every once in a while basis. It's the, it's the stuff in me that I'm, I'm just sick of it being there. And one of the questions I think I asked in the first week is, is what, what about you are you sick of? And when you really think that through, I think you'll find that in that area there's, there's a realm of a jail cell. And you're sick of living in it. You're sick of the, the bland walls, staring at the back end of bars, never going very far. This thing's always within reach. It's going to be here tomorrow. It's going to make its debut this week. You can be feeling great one day and it intrudes on you a couple of days later. And if, you, if you're not aware of, of your jail cell issues, hopefully as we walk through this series, the Lord will quickly make them more real and make you more aware of where they are in your life. If you were to think, this probably won't be true of the guys, but the ladies will, will be able to put a finger on. I want to ask for a hand here. How many of you ladies cried in the past week? Now, you, don't have to, you don't have to raise your hands. <laughs> probably, now think for a moment, whatever that bout with tears was, I, I, I would be willing to venture that there, that's probably a familiar area. An area that's, that's repeatedly frustrating to you. Repeatedly influential in your life. It's pro probably an area of a jail cell. And, you know, guys, um, guys don't normally cry. 
in the week. But there's stuff that's just familiar for us, that at the end of the day, you have to face the reality, I, I did that again, I did that again. Or, I didn't do this, that I should have, again. And so for us, there are issues right around those feelings and thoughts that reveal to us where the jail cell issues are for us, personally, in our lives. I want to raise two questions today to open some thought for us. One, is freedom in God's plan for me? I need to know this. I've got to be convinced. Is freedom in God's plan for me? Because if I'm sitting here this morning and I'm not really sure freedom really is in God's plan for me, then the jail cell that you're experiencing may really be protected by that belief system that you have. You don't expect that it's going to be any different. Why would it be different? Well, we, I just put a couple of scriptures here. There are many in the Bible that convince us God's all over this issue of freedom for us. Luke 4, verse 18, the passage we looked at last week. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. This is the mission statement of Jesus' ministry. So can we, can we possibly read this and conclude that God is not eagerly pursuing our liberty and freedom from the things that hold us captive and from the things that oppress us in this life? I think that passage would be very clear. We said last week, freedom begins with a deliverer. Freedom does not begin with, with self-determination. Freedom doesn't begin by plunging your own abilities and finding out, I need, to, I need to be, I should, I can, self-help, pump you up kind of a message. Freedom, in the biblical sense, begins with a deliverer. It takes somebody besides me to deliver me. And not just anybody, the one anointed by God to do it. And that's only one. So there's only one person, I tell everybody here this morning, no matter where you're from, no matter what religion you grew up in, no matter whether you've been to church, never been to church, you've been through programs, you've been through something else, there's only one person who can set you free in the biblical sense. In the biblical sense. I mean, you live in America, so you live in some form of freedom. That has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. I don't think nothing actually is the right word. The biblical freedom that God wants for us, it has to do with our heart, has to do with our emotions, has to do with the way and manner of our life, is only going to be accomplished by one person. John chapter 8, verse 32 says, And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It will set you free. And you know what's interesting about that passage? John chapter 8, the, the entire context of that passage is Jesus doing battle with a group of people, religious people, he does battle with. And, and let me give a little bit of a warning here. When we're one week into this series. I hope we don't get two weeks and three weeks into this series when you're sitting in the audience going, now this is fine, boy, I'm, I'm sure glad some folks are getting to hear this. I know, and there's some real people I know that are just wrestling with some issues of freedom. And, and the message never glances and touches you. Read John chapter 8 and put yourself in that chapter. Because you know when Jesus said you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free and he began to pound on the issue of freedom through the truth, you know what the response to the audience was? We're children of Abraham. We've never been enslaved. 
to which Jesus says, you know, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. See, in in a way, in a world that God created, no one willfully, if you will, signs on for the next sin. You you commit sin because you're a slave to sin. Because sin has such an influence and a power in its abilities that you will be sinning because you're a slave to sin if you're part of the human race. But what was interesting when Jesus told these guys about freedom and told them about truth, they didn't know they were slaves. And there may be some of us here this morning thinking, huh, nah, this doesn't really touch me a whole lot. I think it, it, I mean, I don't think that's possible. I don't think it's possible. I think every person has at least one area that is a nasty little interferer with all that God has in mind for you as a person. And it may not be some big headline item like pornography or or alcoholism. It, It may not be one of those headlines, but it may be insecurity or jealousy. Maybe those things are pride. Pride's a nasty little hider. I would dare say the guys in John chapter 8, the biggest issue they had was an issue with pride. <laughs> we're, eight. we're children of Abraham. We've never been enslaved. Probably the ones who have the hardest time realizing how enslaved they really are are the ones who are enslaved to pride, which I have quite a history to testify about that. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. So the question, is freedom in God's plan for me? I have to conclude, yes, absolutely. Freedom is in God's plan for you and for me. Well, then that raises question number two. If freedom is in God's plan, then why am I experiencing a jail cell? Why is there an area in my life that I can't seem to shake it? I can't seem to move from being this way to being different. I can't seem to overcome this thing. I am, I am sick of this thing in my life. Why, if God's plan for me is freedom, why do I keep walking in a jail cell? And if you are familiar with your jail cell, you, you will know You will know the frustrations. You will know the tears that you have shed. I shared last week, and I guess I should kind of share bits and pieces of my own jail cell experience to give you a fuller picture each week. I shared last week the the revelation from God, which is a gracious gift of God to show us our issues. The revelation that God began to show me when I was about 19 and 20 years old about the issues of pride in my life that had grown tentacles and were most noticeable in areas of jealousy and in comparison with others and in trying to be impressive. You know, those were the, those were the, the tentacles of pride that were surfacing in my life. And... You know, and, and you know, I'm I'm preaching this, so it's all it all gets presented real neatly. How many of you know that it wasn't real neat? It was ugly, it was messy, and and as I shared last week, there were more than one occasions of tears of frustration of dealing with these issues in my own heart. The more I began to see them, the more I realized how severely outnumbered I was by them, and the effect of them 
on, on just daily living, of living a life where in my heart competing with others, jealous of others, busy in my mind thinking about what others had done or how they had been recognized or who they were and who I was not. And, and of course, the moment you begin to compare, you begin to pay real detailed attention to yourself. Now, if anybody pays real detailed attention to themselves, you will. You will get in touch with all or many of the things that just really are not real likable about you. Be positive all you want, all for being positive. That's great. But if you really stare at yourself, you're going to find out that you're a sinner. I don't mean just got the title. I mean you got the evidence that you really are a sinner, that you really stink in some categories, that you're really unattractive in some ways. Your hands are too big. Your fingernails aren't right. Your nose doesn't sit right on your head. Your ears are a certain shape. Right? At some point, all this stuff, I mean, if you're a young person here, you haven't even ventured into the heart yet. You're staring in the mirror, and all you can see is your hair doesn't part correctly. And that's a big deal to you. Because so-and-so's hair seems to part just right every time. Now, I'm laughing, but, you know, if you'd have met me in seventh grade, I'd have been walking around with one of them big, huge combs sticking out of the back of my pocket. And back then, you know, you parted your hair in the middle and you had that feathered look. You know? So, you know, I would not have walked far down the school hallway without a quick flip and a, you know, kind of a thing. You know? And, you know, before you walked into the classroom, you know, it would be the... You know, big giant, like a weapon coming out of my back pocket there. That was a big deal. That mattered tremendously. I had no idea eventually my hair was going to fall out. You know, it's not going to really matter your hairstyle. You're just going to have to try and manage that thing sitting on top of your head. <coughs> but when you're younger, you know, those kind of comparison issues, well, they, they turn into something else when you get older. They just, they just kind of morph in a new direction. But, you know, I don't, I don't want to give you the, you know, I present these issues in my own life. And, and for, if you're battling with your own issues right now, for you, uh, you know, you're getting a, a quick, cleaned up highlight reel from me. And my wife and I were talking about some of this the other day. And, I, you know, thinking back on the Lord revealing issues of pride to me. And then when I really begin to experience growth and great freedom in this category, we're talking... 10, 12, 14 years of battle in this area from the day when God began to reveal it to me to the day when I began to really experience freedom in these categories. And, and I do want to say that. I, I'd love to be able to stand here and say, I'm free from pride. God has freed me from pride. Uh, that would be right on the other side of my body collapsing and me going to heaven when I could actually say that. But I will say, I don't live in the jail cell I once lived in. I want you to know that. You know, I don't walk into every setting like I once walked into every setting, trying to figure out how I can insert myself in a strategic fashion in order to draw attention to me, but not let anybody know that I'm drawing attention to me. I mean, this is how pride operates. I thank God that I can, I can listen to somebody else, be more impressed with somebody besides me, and not be all bothered by that. Trying to compete with some other pastor, some other preacher, some other person who's accomplished something more than I have. I thank God that I get to actually enjoy listening to somebody else be good at what they're good at for the glory of God. But I want to tell you, 
That didn't come when God said, oh, look, you have a pride issue, Keith. Here, read Andrew Murray's book on humility. And then a week later, I all of a sudden was just, I didn't have these issues anymore. I love it that that were the story. We're talking 12, 14 years later before I could really say those issues, they do not surface in my life the same way anymore by the grace of God. Am I still tempted in those areas? Yeah, but nothing like it was before. Miserable before. So I, I say that, uh, you know, sometimes you, you preach and you, you, get to, you get to tidy life up, handle the passages, feed it out to people, and it all looks like it's, oh, well, for you, I guess it's just one, two, three, right? And you're just on your way. Well, it's not working that way for me. Okay, well, come and tell me 10 to 14 years from now how you're doing. Don't tell me ten days from now. You know, I'm trying, I've tried what you said last week, you know, and, and it was fine, you know, and I really was pumped up, and I, but it's just not working. Okay. Put on truth, wrestle with the issues we're going to talk about today for the next ten to twelve years. And then tell me the freedom you're experiencing. But, you know, don't do, don't do this to me. Uh, I think Peter, if you knew Peter's story... He would be a prolific example of a God that, that you really couldn't do this to him either. Don't assume that I don't know what you're experiencing when it comes to mental gymnastics. Of your mind jumping through the hoops of being by yourself and thinking about what somebody else thinks and how they feel and all those issues and, and, and feeling trapped, feeling like you can't get out, feeling like this issue has got you on a leash and it pulls you whenever it wants. Don't assume I don't know what you're experiencing because my particular flavor of experience isn't exactly yours. I know what it is to be pulled through hoops backwards mentally and to grow to hate it and to shed tears of frustration over it. But I'll also tell you today, I know what it is to experience freedom in that very same area. And I hope every person here, by the grace of God, will live to see their jail cell, something that stands in the distance, and not something that decorates the edges of their life on a weekly basis. Let me talk for a moment about making sense of, of why I continue to experience these battles in my life. Biblically, can we get some understanding on why that happens? Well, let me show you a slide here. I hope that will be a little bit helpful to understand the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Uh, and this may really unlock the Bible for you. It's a very simple illustration, but I hope it, it will give you some understanding of why life doesn't why doesn't life just become tidy, you know, instantly tidy when I become a Christian? Why, why are there still some issues here that I'm facing? Well, if you start from the bottom here, that first line would represent the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of this world begins when sin enters into the human experience. At the fall, the kingdom of this world, with all of its ideas, with all of its effects upon humanity, Physically, emotionally, spiritually, it begins at that point. It will run until the end of the age when the Lord will determine to shut down the kingdom of this world. And that, that day is coming. Now, 
at some point, just to the left of the cross here, that line coming down, if you will, is, is a, approximately Luke chapter 4. When Jesus comes, his inaugural visit, inaugurating the kingdom of God and pronouncing the kingdom of God is among you. And he would call it the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. These two terms get mixed together in the New Testament. So the kingdom of heaven has come. Repent, for the kingdom of God has come. And Jesus came bringing the message that He was the one bringing this kingdom to man. Now, you'll notice something interesting here, this little shaded area. When the kingdom of God gets announced, the kingdom of God, if you will, beginning for humanity, and it will go on for eternity. It will have no end. And what Jesus brings to us is the the promise of this coming kingdom. The promise of a heavenly realm in which our lives will be very, very, very different than they are right here in the kingdom of this world. And when we read the Bible, there's an element of God's promise by... Let me use a good example here because physical illness is a real question mark for many Christians. And doctrinally, we need to be informed better by Scripture to be able to deal with the reality of it. By His stripes, I am healed. Now and not yet. See, what the Bible does is it, it, Jesus stands, and what the Bible promotes, it is speaking of a future kingdom. And in that future kingdom, there will be no kingdom of this world present. You and I live in this little time frame in between the coming of the kingdom of God and the end of this kingdom. This kingdom of this world still remains right now. It still is here. It still is in effect. It still has sickness in it. It still has sin in it. It still has temptation in it. We still die. You realize none of those things will be in the kingdom of God. Right? Everybody with me? None of those things exist in the kingdom of God. But they exist right now because there's this overlap period that God has allowed and intended to do something in this little gray shaded area that's going to magnify His greatness and His glory in a particular way that He wants to do right now. And He's right to do it. But what we have is we have these promises, realities that are being spoken into our existence while the kingdom of this world remains in our midst. So, by His stripes... I am healed. Without question, when Jesus went to the cross and He took our sins, our weaknesses, and our sicknesses in His body, He purchased for us bodies that will never, ever experience sickness. Now, what some people do, and they fumble theologically here when they do it, they have interpreted that to mean that these bodies should no longer experience illness. By His stripes, I'm healed. Jesus purchased for me healing. If you'll allow me to say it this way, ultimately, what he purchased for you is a body that sin and sickness will not touch at all. And everybody knows when we die, we get a glorified body. Who paid for that glorified body? Well, Jesus did on the cross. He purchased a glorified body from me. Do I have it right now? No, I don't. I still have the earthly body, don't I? The earthly body still has the effects of the kingdom of this world. Now, at some point, it will not any longer, but for right now, it does. And so it's not appropriate for me to assume that the Bible is teaching that if you're a Christian, 
you should no longer have sickness anymore in your body. I don't believe that's biblical. What the Bible highlights is into this fallen kingdom of this world, God has injected a taste of that which is to come. We call that gifts of healing. Why would you need gifts of healing if everybody was whole? There will be no gifts of healing in heaven. Everybody know that? There will be wholeness in heaven. There will be no temptation in heaven because there will be no sin in heaven. But in this world, there is temptation. There is sin. There is sickness. People do die. Because the kingdom of this world still exists, running simultaneously with the kingdom of God. And that's why the, the Bible uses words like first fruits, uses words like down payment. Right? When you make a down payment on the house, it's not the whole thing, is it? You know, it's 5%, it's 10%. It's, it's, it's a piece of the whole thing. First fruits, we're not farmers, but first fruits is, is when you go out and you collect a little portion of the entire harvest. It's the first fruits of the entire harvest. It's not the entire harvest. It's the first fruits of the entire harvest. So theologically, we, we call this the now and the not yet. There's an element of what the kingdom of God brings to us that is right now, and there's elements of it that are not yet. But they will be, and we get to taste them. If you want a great passage on this, read Romans chapter 8, verse 18, and the verses after that. And you'll get a good taste for the concept that, that freely admits that we are to be looking for a kingdom that is not right now. And right now in these bodies, even we who have received the Spirit, groan in these bodies. Now if I understand this theologically, I make room for the reality that God wants me free. And yet I still need to be informed by Moses that his people were suffering? No. The Lord prophesied that's exactly what would happen. The sovereign purpose of God is taking place when we read in Exodus 3, verse 14. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Listen to verse 16. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Why, why, why did these guys need to suffer for 400 years under the hand of the Egyptians? Why do you need to suffer the length of, of time that, that you're suffering? Why do you need to battle with issues for the length that you're battling them? I don't know that God always informs us, but what I see in this verse is a God who's paying attention to the details. He doesn't misplace your file. He's not uninformed. And what I'm not aware of sometimes is God is doing something around me in other people's lives and other dimensions of His glory getting expressed that I'm a part of in a way that I don't realize I'm a part of. And so some of what he's doing is informed by his own wisdom and his own will and not informed by my understanding of all the landscape of life. These guys in Egypt, I guarantee you, they weren't sitting there crying out to God going, God, listen, we're trying to be patient. We know the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. We we understand that all the nations, the Amorites are all the Canaanite nations that God is about to go in and obliterate. He's going to go in and take the children of Israel and go destroy them all. 
He's going to bring judgment. And in this moment, he's going to be absolutely right to bring judgment because the iniquity of the Amorite has become right for judgment to be the appropriate response of a perfect, perfect God. Now, do the guys in Egypt know that? No. All they know is that that ugly dude over there with the whip keeps beating me in the back every day when I go to work. That's what I know. I don't know anything about the Amorites. I don't know what's going on anywhere else. But God does. And God is working all things after the counsel of His will. And so for the Egyptians, there's something going on. For the Israelites in Egypt, there's something else going on in the economy of God that makes everything God's doing perfect. And that's true for you. It's true in that season where, God, have you not heard? Because Moses begins by almost accusing God. Because the response, God, I have surely seen the affliction. God, where are you? Don't you know what's going on in my life? I assure you, God does know what's going on in your life. And this perfect, loving, merciful, gracious, wise, God-glorifying God is doing not only work in your life, but through your life, around your life, in other people's lives. And when it all comes together, it's going to be perfect. You may not see that right now, but hang in there. Let God show you Himself. But look what happens here in verse 8. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now, interesting thing here is being said in that little line. I'm bringing you out of the land of bondage, and I'm bringing you into the promised land. Now, now for some of us, we think the promised land is Disney World. It's run through the gates. You have a, a ticket that allows you to ride all the rides. You don't even have to stand in line. It's the promised land of life. It is the promised land. But even in God's promise of saying it's a land flowing with milk and honey, he also highlights another little characteristic of it. It's the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites. It's their place. So when you get in there, you are going to have your hands full in the promised land. So I want to highlight a couple of things that are in this verse that characterize their lives in the land of promise and that also characterize ours. One, look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. It is a land where temptation is still available. Right, now, please don't, I, I know I'm, I'm going I'm to teach a lot today, so please, all these points connect. So please try and stay with me as we walk through how does a jail cell become a jail cell? How does my sin get to the place where it has these dominant features in my life? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10. Listen to what the Lord says. This is, this is after the Exodus. This is right as the children of Israel are about to go in to the promised land. And the Lord says this, verse 10, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat... 
and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall, you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. Interesting. The land of promise is a land with temptations in it. Temptations that are strong enough to make you forget about God and to crave the gods of that land. So that would be a huge reason as to why jail cells are still issues for Christians. Because though we are delivered out of the bondage of Egypt, the land into which we now live is a land full of opportunities for the flesh, full of temptations, full of other gods that are still accessible for us to serve. And we face the temptation for that to happen. Secondly, look in Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's a land of enemies and warfare. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now the Lord your God brings you, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering, to take possession of it. To take it. You are going to have to take this land. It is the Lord giving it to you, but you are going to have to take it. And he clears away many nations before you. Now, notice right this dichotomy. Don't ever, don't ever overlook these tensions in the Bible. The Lord clears the land away, but you have to take it. Do you, do you understand the sovereignty and the responsibility dynamics are all throughout the Bible? If you misplace one of them, you end up with something unbiblical. It is God who will receive the glory for clearing the land, but you will have to be responsible to take the land. So if it doesn't happen, blame yourselves. He clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. And that's a very informing dynamic. How many of us, right, a little different land, little different titles, don't quite have the Jebusites and the Hittites in the land that we're living in, but there are some people here, there are some concepts, there are some false gods in the land that we live in. How many of us have devoted them in our hearts to complete destruction? Complete destruction. Or how many of us would like to just kind of take the edges off of them and keep a good portion of the practices and the ideas for ourselves? You shall devote them to complete destruction. Why? Because if you don't, you shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. This is the land of promise in which that occurs. This is the land on the other side of being delivered out of the bondage of Egypt where the people of God can be led astray. Because there's temptation in the land and there are enemies in the land. And if there are enemies in the land, there are battles to fight. There's warfare in the land that you and I are called to be a part of. And there's purpose in this warfare. Turn to Judges. 
Judges chapter 2. Joshua, the book after Deuteronomy, Joshua leads the charge, comes into the promised land, fights battles. It's, a, it's an entire book of the battles of taking possession of the land. Judges opens with the job just about done, but not quite. There's still enemies in the land. Listen to Judges chapter 2, verse 21. The Lord says, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, and he lists them off. In verse 4 it says, They were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commands of the Lord. They were for the testing of Israel. God left enemies in the land of promise for the testing of Israel. That doesn't sound like a good deal unless you put a high value on your faith being tested. And most of us don't, do we? We hate the day of testing. We love the day of ease. Leave me alone. Make life easy. That's what I'm praying for. All my prayers are about God. This is hard. Make it easier. This is too long. Make it shorter. This is a challenge. Lord, uh, do it some other way. That's what, don't most of our prayers sound that way? We don't stand in line and say, Lord, test me. Oh, God, test me this week. <laughs> oh, God, let it just come down like a test that I could fail. We're not praying that way. But what the Bible says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So when God gets a hold of my life, it's a mess. I'm going to get delivered. It's a mess. It's a long way from being conformed to the image of Christ, the measure of a mature man. There's a lot of change that needs to take place in me. So God, in His wisdom, leaves enemies in the land of the promise that I've been called into so that I may learn war and be tested by them so that my faith will actually endure and I will become completed in Him. Now, that's what testing's for. Well, if you're going to have testing, you're going to have to have testers. So in the land of promise, in the land that you live in, in the land that I live in, there are testers left there by God in order to produce in me a faith that will endure. Listen, if you're in the church for very long, and I'll ruffle your feathers for a second, I believe if you have genuine faith, you're going to endure to the end. I believe that. I believe if you've really been born again by the Spirit of God, come hell or high water, in the end, you're going to be God's. And you're going to spend eternity with him. Now, do I believe that just that's just a flimsy, uh, you know, once saved, always saved? Uh, I, I don't care for those terminologies because they they lack any content of explanation. Let me tell you this: I believe in a God 
who's going to make sure and design your life, who he saved, in such a way that you will be tested. And he will be faithful in the testing. Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. I believe that same God prays for me that my faith would not fail. Now, unless you believe that there's a God who can pray and not get his prayers answered, I believe that when I'm tested, endurance is going to be the fruit of that because I have a, a, a Son of God praying for me. And I believe He has designed my life in such a way to make sure that when I'm saved, I'm going to walk through trials and issues and challenges that are going to keep my faith vibrant and trusting Him. So in the end, I'm going to stand before Him saved in the end. So I don't just believe that, oh, you know, so it doesn't matter how you live your life, huh? And once saved, always saved. No, I don't believe that. But I'm not putting the emphasis on me and how I live. I'm putting the emphasis on God who has designed my life to make sure I get to the end. Now, if that's how God operates, then I'm glad that there are the presence of enemies in the land in which I live. For if there was no war, I'm not sure I would trust God the way I need to. I'm not sure I'd look to him. If life didn't get bigger than me, remember the description of these enemies? More numerous and mightier than you. If you don't ever encounter something about yourself, something about life that's not more numerous and mightier than you, you won't turn to God and trust him. Whether you're unsaved or whether you're saved. So by the grace of God, there are enemies all over the land. And I know the temptation is to think, God, what are you doing? God, what are you doing? Why would you leave this enemy in my life? God, why am I having to deal with this again? Well, the mere fact that you're turning your face to God and asking Him why and asking Him for help gives away the reason, doesn't it? Because that thing mightier than you is making you turn away from yourself and all of your frustration and weakness and turn to God, the one who actually can bring the answer and the one who's causing your faith to launch out to Him. Lord, thank you for such wisdom to design my life to keep me from going astray in very real and important ways. Conclusion about this kingdom issue. The kingdom of this world has been invaded, but not yet destroyed by the coming kingdom of God. The presence and power and promise of God has been given to the children of God to manifest His kingdom in the midst of the kingdom of this world. That's what the kingdom of God is about. Now, if that's the case, if that's who you and I are, there's an invasion that's taken place. And actually, we're part of the invasion. And if you were to think of your life as a Marine, right, remember the Marines? Right, they're the guys who, who get on a ship and go and storm a beach and invade, have to make a penetration into hostile territory. And the Marines, in the normal routine of their serving, don't stop and ask the kind of questions that sometimes we ask. Lord, I don't understand. Why, why am I being shot at? I mean, Lord, I trusted you. I turned to you and I called you my Savior. Lord, why, why is there a bullet in my shoulder right now? Why, why did the mortifier just go off and almost take my leg off, God? Why? You only ask that question if you don't realize you signed on to be a Marine. You didn't realize that's what you signed on for when you got saved, huh? And next thing you know, you got saved and you were on some amphibious assault thing and the front end lowered and there you were staring at a beach and there were bullets flying everywhere. That's Christianity. 
No one told you that. Uh, <laughs> it was in the small print, and it was a fast meeting. The army recruiter didn't say that. That's what God signed you on for. He wanted you to be an invasion force. So there are folks here who, in your life, God has, God has set you free from alcohol to make you a Marine, to go into the land of abusers of alcohol and to face the bullets and the fighting and to bring to them liberation in their lives. This is, you know, some of us signed on for the, uh, the non-hostile, no-weapons-involved parenting lifestyle. Yeah. You know, we just, we just want them to be cute. Uh, don't ever learn to talk. You know, just love them when they're cute. You know, we don't want them ever to have, I used to joke, you know, it's like one day my kid's will came in the mail. It's like all they just kind of kicked in. It's like, hey, I'm my own guy now. I got it. You know, do their thing, have an opinion, resist, cry, kick, scream. You know, and then that just grows up and takes on different forms. And But, you know, we as parents, we, we don't want any bullets. We don't want any bullets firing. We don't want to be shot by our own children, for goodness sake. But the reality is, they are armed and dangerous. <laughs> and and uh, not very skillful at where they aim their weaponry and shoot everything in sight sometimes. And welcome to the operation of sin. That's how sin operates in our lives. It operated in us that way when we were their age and operates in them that way too. But what if you could see yourself, mom or dad, and you're not just a mom, you're a marine mom. <laughs> you are storming the beaches, going into enemy territory amidst hostile fire in order to liberate your sons and your daughters from the tyranny of sin. What if that's what your assignment is? That's a great assignment, isn't it? I keep that in mind. I'm okay. When bullets fly, I patch my arm up. I'm bleeding out of this, but I'm keeping on going. I stay on task if I'm well-informed. Listen, the Bible uses a lot of warfare pictures. First Corinthians says, you know, the weapons, the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal. They're spiritual and they're mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. See, you're a Marine. Marines are trained and equipped. Now, that might be a problem for some of us. If we lack training because we don't know truth well enough, and we're not well equipped, bullets still fly. You just don't know what to do when they start flying. You don't know how to shoot back. You don't know how to encounter the enemy. But we need to learn how to do that. Now, let me get into an understanding here. Okay, that's, that's the kingdom that we live in. Everybody got that picture? That's, that's why this... Challenge. Why? God, you want me to be free, but why am I still experiencing a jail cell? Because you live simultaneously in two kingdoms. And you are an invasion force in this kingdom that is very hostile to your presence. And at some point, not only are you just going to have sin to deal with, you're going to have a jail cell issue of sin to deal with in you. Now let me explain why that is. And I want to get past just the generic sense of dealing with sin into the issues that are more controlling and common. Not stuff that might happen. You know, I, I might drive out of here and, and you know, get to Winn-Dixie and the cash register breaks and have to stand in line for too long and I might become, you know, I, I, you know, I just might have an angry thought. And that might happen. But it's probably much more likely that I will go home today 
and, and I, will, I will want personal space. I will want to be left alone. And I will have request after request of need after need coming to me. And it's much more likely for me in that moment that I will battle and face impatience, which is much more of a common issue for me than something else might be. So I want to talk about issues that control, issues that bring a sense of gotcha again, gotcha again. Thought you got away, huh? And it still touches your life on a regular basis. Let's look for a moment at the building materials of your jail cell. First, the presence of sin in the world. Why, why are there jail cells? Because sin is present in the world. Sin is present in a world that I, I, I call it this way. The polarity of the world is negatively charged. Right, you know how magnets work? You know, if you turn them the wrong way, they repel each other. You know, the polarity of this world is negatively charged. It, it repels the things of God. It's against the things of God because of the fall, because of the presence of sin. In this world, sin reigns, not righteousness. In this world, sin is the dominant reign. In this world, in this kingdom. Romans 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So that's what we have, sin reigning. The God of this world is its ruler. And when you look at the world, it's under the influence of a spiritual power. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, against rulers in heavenly places. Second right? Corinthians 4 calls the, Satan the God of this world, the power and the principality of the air. Third polarity issue, up is down in this world and down is up. Be very informed. This world does not think and operate on the same principles that the kingdom of God operates on. They are opposites. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. Verse 24 says, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You take two different kingdoms. The kingdom of God looks on the cross and says, Wow, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The kingdom of this world looks on the cross and says, that's stupid. Now listen, in this area of freedom, the cross is at the center of it all. Because sin is at the center of your bondage. Please hold on to this thought. We're going to develop it further in the next couple of weeks. The cross is at the center of your freedom. Because sin is at the center of your bondage. Now you want to be free? The world, in its counsel, however it comes to you, looks at the cross and says, foolishness. Set that aside. Now, I have to try and bring freedom to you without the cross. Because the cross is foolishness. You let somebody hear that you're being counseled biblically, who has professional elements of counsel in their life. They will think it's too simplistic. It's too simple. No, no what you really need is something really, really complicated. Why? Because that's too simple. It's foolish. It's naive. But in the kingdom of God, the cross is the wisdom and it's the power of God too. You want to get free from the power of sin? Words won't do it. Ideas won't do it. It will take the power of the cross to set you free from the power of sin. Now the question is, are you in bondage because of sin? Different subject. We'll get to that another time. First John chapter 2 informs us about the world. All that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, 
the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. That's what's in the world. Now, let me, let me just use the Bible to put on the glasses through which you see the world. We, we get way too worldly in our thinking about the world. We think the world's it's a pretty decent place. We think people, you know, overall, people are pretty good people. I mean, basically, you know, they're pretty good. That's absolutely biblically uninformed. The Bible says there is none who is good. No, not one. Oh, but you know, you mean that little old lady down the street who just, I mean, she's just the sweetest thing. Well, let her be a sweet old lady to you, but don't tell me she's good. Because that's not biblical. And what, why, you know, why make a big deal out of stuff like this? Because when your heart starts to identify good in the wrong categories, you lower your guard. If the world is, is you know, basically good, then I'm not going to protect myself from it. I'm not going to look on it with suspicion and concern. What if the words I use to describe the world, world are words like corrupt, deceitful? That's the words the Bible uses. Well, now I'm going to interact with the world a little bit differently. I'm going to filter things a little bit differently because I know there's an enemy with schemes going on in this world. And how I think towards the things and the ideas and the practices of the world need to be carefully handled because of the presence of sin in the world. Because of this presence of sin, sin is enslaving. How do I get into these jail cells? Because sin is enslaving. It's not looking to bump you. It's looking to put shackles on you. Sin is never simply looking to say hi and goodbye. Sin is always looking to stay for the rest of your life. Don't, don't ever invite sin over for a dinner party. Sin ain't never going home. You just thought sin was gone. He was in the bathroom. I mean, he's still in your house. He's not leaving. Because sin's goal is to be enslaving. John 8:34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Romans 6, verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? If you present yourself to something, here I am, temptation, let's put temptation as someone, you present yourself to temptation, the one to whom you present yourself to is the one to whom you will become a slave. And you will find yourself doing what that sin wants you to do over and over and over again. And slaves, though they want to be free, they run as far as they can until all of a sudden the chain around their leg goes tight. And that's as far as you get to go because sin is enslaving. Now, I'm, just, I'm barely scratching the surface on these verses. But let me, let me just make this point. If you talk to a person who is labeled today an addict, drug addict, alcoholic, and you talk to that person, and maybe you've experienced this yourself, you will hear these words, I feel out of control. I feel out of control. Now what, what the counseling world has done it's taken that statement from people and it's made that statement to say something like, well, because you feel out of control, there must be something outside of you that's really making you do this. Biblically so far, we're in agreement. We're, we're good. I would agree with you. There is something else besides you making you do what you do. And you can go in one of two steps at this point. 
you can say you have something physically wrong with you, like uh, a broken leg. A person doesn't limp with a broken leg because they're making moral choices, do they? They have a broken leg. They limp against their will. Their body inflicts a limp upon them. So if there's something physiologically wrong with you, you have disease, then sure, you're, you're out of control because the disease is controlling you. Something is making me do what I do. Well, the Bible says that something is sin. It's a very different issue now. See, the, the Bible is not silent on this. If you present yourself to someone, you will become that someone's slave. You present yourself over and over and over again. One drink after another drink after another drink after a lifestyle of drinks. You keep doing that over and over and over again. You will at some point feel as though you have lost control. Biblically, you have. Sin has enslaved you. You are no longer in control. Sin is now in control of you. Now, what's the only thing that can set somebody free from the power of sin? The cross of Christ. You see where Christianity is at the center of life. Don't let the world redefine the issues of life for us. The Bible's not silent on people feeling out of control. The Bible explains why you feel out of control. Because sin is enslaving. And at some point, you will be, have given control over to sin in your life. So that's the first issue. Building material, number one, is the presence of sin. Number two is the, the general condition of the human flesh. Right? Galatians chapter 5. There is this issue of my flesh is a certain way. I'm living in a fallen world, but my flesh is a certain way. That's just the reality. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. You are living in a flesh body that has its own set of desires. Fallen desires. Desires that are against the Spirit. So, why is there jail cell issues? Because I live in a world permeated by sin, and my flesh is still under its influence. And it has desires that are contrary to the desires of God. Desires. Notice that word, desires. You're not just doing the wrong thing. You want to do the wrong thing. So don't let there be mystery. Well, why do, I, why do I keep doing this? Because you want to do it. Two drug dealers are standing on the corner. One of them saying, I've got this new drug. Man, it's a new form of cocaine. You'll experience a high. You're going to think you are flying. You have never felt this good in your life. On the other street corner is a, is a guy saying, i got no, man. Come over here. i got this new drug. You take this, you're going to throw up for hours. Which drug are you buying? You know, buy the one that's going to make you feel good. Why? Because that's what you want. You want the effect of it in your life. See, the problem with sin is, sin is pleasurable for a season. That's how it sells you. There's a season of great euphoria with sin, followed by a debt that you're going to hate. And we learn that biblically. But that's the reality of sin. And listen to the rest of this passage, Galatians chapter 5. 
Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Okay, you have desires of the flesh. Anytime you have desires, they're going to get acted on, and they're become works. So this is the fruit, the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, the tone of this verse clearly recognizes that there are desires in us, cravings in us, strong actions that begin to take place in our lives. But what the Bible doesn't do is it doesn't stop there and say, you know, if these things are really intense in your life, I don't know. It just, you're hopeless. There, there will be no change. I mean, you know, you are that way. What can I say? You know, you just, you just have these kind of genetics or it's just, that's who you are. Now, the Bible seems to introduce in this passage that it shouldn't be that way. That's the whole tone of this passage. It shouldn't be this way for the one who's in Christ because of the presence of the Spirit of God. Because in the land where enemies mightier than you, but in you is one greater than the enemies now. Greater is he who's in me than he who's in the world. And he who's in my flesh. So that the fruit of the Spirit can be experienced in a believer who's walking in any of these patterns that are identified in this passage. Let me hit this last point here. Not just the general condition of your, your flesh, but the specific condition of your flesh. Your flesh in particular. Let's get some help from John Owen, the Puritan from the 1600s. He says, let him that would not enter into temptation labor to know his own heart to be acquainted with his own spirit, his natural frame and temper, his lusts and corruptions, his natural, sinful, or spiritual weaknesses, that finding where his weakness lies, he may be careful to keep at a distance from all occasions of sin. Do you notice in your life that you tend to face certain battles differently than you tend to face others? That not every sin tempts you at the same strength or the same level? If you just read through that list from Galatians chapter 5, you find some of that stuff going on in your life and some of it never has. Right? I mean, we keep pounding on the alcohol issue. How many of you guys have never had a problem with alcohol? Let me see your hands. Look, look around. Okay. Uh, now, for those who have had a problem and it's been a severe controlling problem, you almost can't understand how on earth, how on earth that all those people just now raise their hands. Because... You, you don't traffic in all of temptation exactly the same way because there's something unique about you that makes certain sins more attractive to you than other sins. Whether it's your personality, whether it's genetics, whether it's your personal history, whether it's a sense of pleasure you received at a certain point that became very convincing to you to continue to seek it. But for, for whatever reason, you have a little specific element of who you are. You battle with sin in particular ways, in particular areas that are much stronger and much more effective in your life than something else is. And these things may have been lifelong issues. 
You, you may have been a, a little child who battled with shyness. And, and I would imagine if you did, and you, you were fearful of people, and very concerned about settings, and who would be there, and whether you'd be comfortable, I would bet as an adult you still face some of those issues. For many, many people. Maybe that's changed for some, but I bet for many that's not. If you're, on the other hand, a very people-oriented person, you were the kind of person that you didn't care who was there, you didn't notice who was there, you're just doing your thing, interact with people, just, just absolutely comfortable with anybody coming and going in your life. I bet as an adult, you're that way too. Just something naturally resides in you in some regards. That makes you a unique person. And so the battle lines for sin, I don't think they are the same for everybody. We all fight sin, but we don't all have to fight the particular sins that each of us individually gravitate towards. Listen to this thought from Ed Welch. From a biblical perspective, we can grant that alcohol affects different people in different ways and that some may be more prone to be seduced by it. But this is the same for any sin. Some may struggle with homosexual urges, others with jealousy, gossip, or lying. These tendencies certainly do not mean self-control is impossible or personal responsibility is diminished. They simply mean that we must be even more vigilant when in a situation where sin can be provoked. If you have a drinking problem, then you better pay attention to that area of your life in a way that I don't have to pay attention. Because it's not an issue for me the same way it is for you. I have other issues and I better be paying careful attention to those. But I need to know something about me a little bit be able to do this. I need to know and understand a little bit about how sin operates in me and how temptation comes to me. John Owen says, there are advantages for temptations lying oftentimes in men's natural tempers and constitutions. Some are naturally gentle, facile, easy to be entreated, pliable, which though it be the noblest temper of nature and the best and choicest ground, when well broken up and fallowed for grace to grow in, yet if not watched over, will be a means of innumerable surprisals and entanglements and temptations. You can just be one of those people that's just kind of nice to everybody, just, you know, just never cross with anybody. And that same personality can enslave you to everybody you come in contact with. So concerned that somebody doesn't like you now. Huh? Well, maybe they just misunderstood. My intentions were good. And you just live under that all day long. You're thinking about, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Huh? I was trying to help, and perhaps I shouldn't have. Oh. See, but when people interact with you, you're just sweet and kind and gentle and always easy to get along with. You don't cross them. You don't, wait, 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 mate. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That kind of stuff never comes out of you. And it might seem great, but it can also lead to a different form of bondage, can it? And you might be on the other side. You might have other issues about your personality that kind of, kind of make you who you are that give rise to a whole different set of sin components and temptations for you. This last thought from Mr. Owen. Now, he that would watch that he, ent- he enter not into temptation can need be acquainted with his own natural temper, that he may watch over the treacheries that lie in it continually. He who watches not this thoroughly, who is not exactly skilled in the knowledge of himself, will never be disentangled from one temptation or another all his days. If you have jail cell issues, they are the ones that stick around. They're like you. They have the same shape and color and odor that you have. 
And if you don't pay attention for them, you just think, well, that's just kind of who I am. Well, in some ways, yeah, that is who you are. In some ways, it's not to be who you are anymore. And you don't want to give license to that thing to stay in your life. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to stop. I'm going to close with an illustration that you can get ready to come. And what I hope to accomplish today is to let us see why, if God wants me to be free, why am I facing this battle with sin? Why? If freedom is supposed to be for the believer, why? Well, understand something about these kingdoms. Understand the presence of sin. Understand something about yourself. The issue that's in you that's awaiting a moment to erupt. I put this illustration in your outline at the end there. Hurricane sin. Listen, there are some issues that are going to touch your life. They're going to be like a rain cloud on the afternoon. They come, they, sh- they shower, they go away. The sun comes back out. The steam comes up from the ground. Got a little wet. It's okay. You move on. That's how some sin is. But there are other sins that are like Katrina. They come into your life and they rearrange the landscape. They alter your actions. They alter your attitudes. They alter your moods. They, they change who you want to be around, where you want to go. They touch your life in controlling ways. These are more like hurricanes. They're not like afternoon showers. You know the ingredients for a hurricane? Everybody here ought to be a junior meteorologist, so this should just be a review. <clears throat> well, first thing you need is low pressure. Right? Low pressure just creates a little lift off the surface of the earth. It's not high pressure. It's low pressure. It's a little, little draw, a little pull here, which is not a big deal until the little draw and the little pull gets around warm water. When it gets near warm water, now it has fuel for what it's trying to do. It's trying to create this, this hyper-evaporation dynamic. So warm water helps it. It fuels it. So now all of a sudden the rotation can begin to move quicker. And the only thing at that point that can save that thing from really just taking off, and you guys have seen this, right? I mean, probably Katrina did this, right? We, we all went to bed Saturday night, and I thought, well, we'll just see how it's doing tomorrow. And I woke up Sunday morning, and it was Category 5, headed right at us. This thing had blown up overnight. Well, why? Because that low pressure drove over a warm spot in the Gulf of Mexico. And all of a sudden, it had fuel now, and that low pressure began to explode into something. And, you know, the only other factor that influences a hurricane is what's going on in the upper elevations. They call it the shear wind. It's the wind that blows the top off of the hurricane. So those three factors are what make hurricanes hurricanes. Now think about this for your own issue, your own jail cell issue, that powerful storm of sin. Every one of us has some area of low pressure in us. It's part of who I am. It's part of my, it's what makes my issues my issues. And you have it too. But if I can, if I get that low pressure into warm water, if I get my low pressure into the right environment, it begins to rotate violently. And it begins to take a different shape and a different force and a different control in my life. And the only thing that's going to keep that thing in that moment, one, it'd be nice to stay away from the warm water, which is an issue. 
But the only other hope for me in that moment is that there's these strong sheer winds blowing off the tops of these sin issues popping up in my life. You know, I believe what those things are is, is the spiritual disciplines of your life. The activity of the Holy Spirit, the revelation of God, worship, my passion for the glory of God, my knowledge of Him, my enjoyment of Him, my being with Him, my experiencing conviction in the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. Those things are like strong sheer winds that when the sin begins to grab hold of my life and begin to be a mighty force in my life and it begins to emerge strong in my life, if spiritual disciplines are in place, I guarantee you it'll shear the top off of that thing before it becomes category five and just wrecks your life. And what I hope all of us can do is to identify the low pressure, me. What's the low pressure issues for me? If you're here right now and you're battling with some issues, you're facing a jail cell, you're, you're, you're sick of it, you're worn out by it, then, then you need to analyze these three components. What is the low pressure in you that you keep needing to deal with and address? Have you made the mistake of posturing your life over warm water? Have you put yourself in a place where this sin can grow and flourish? Have you made unwise choices and decisions? You know, the obvious, you know, if you're a guy who battles with alcohol, you know, you you don't need alcohol in your refrigerator then, do you? You don't need to go somewhere where others are going to be drinking it. Oh, I have to, I have to give up a bunch of my friends. Yeah. Yeah, and if that's even a question for you, you don't hate your sin enough. And it hasn't cost you enough for you yet. Maybe costing everybody around you plenty. They they're they're they've paid enough already. But for you, to give up my buddies, my friends? Huh, well, they're great friends, let me just tell you that. Yeah, it's exactly what you'd have to do. If you're a guy battling with pornography issues, that's a low pressure system. You're a sensual person. You're prone to that. If you allow that to move over warm water, if you allow access to images in your life, you are going to have a hurricane on your hands. Well, what do I do with that then? Get rid of the access to images. Stay out of the warm water. And that's not all you need to do. You need to have a severe wind of the Spirit blowing from the west in your life, shearing the tops off of sin when it wants to take its toll on you and emerge as a major issue. If you got casual, oh, and I'm looking around this room and I'm seeing men in particular, spiritual disciplines stink. They stink. Have you heard of hurricane season? Do you know what it is? Do you know what it is when the devil visits the Son of God? And departs and says he departed until an opportune time. Do you know what that is? Do you know what it is that at some point in your life, sin will seem pleasurable for a season? Something about you will be ripe. It will be warm water season. 
And your low pressure is just waiting for that moment. If in that moment you don't have spiritual disciplines ready to take the tops off of those issues, you're going to have a hurricane on your hands again. Bringing all kinds of destruction again into your life. Listen, guys, this is the anatomy of a jail cell. This is how we get in bondage. This is how sin gets control in our lives. But it doesn't need to be this way. Let's stand up together.